0: Welcome to Peace by Believing with John Redmond, Associate Pastor of First Baptist Church in Pasadena, Texas. There are seasons in each of our lives where we face some turbulence. Whether the season is spiritual, physical, relational, or maybe even financial, our lives can get a little windblown and bumpy. Today, John brings a message from God's Word entitled In the Midst of the Whirlwind.
1: Well, if you'll open your Bible to the book of Proverbs chapter number 10, I do want to talk to you today about what happens to us when we find ourselves in a whirlwind. Now, I think we, we have an idea of what a whirlwind is in nature. Sometimes there are winds that are coming in from this direction, and there are other winds that are coming in from this direction, and these winds meet each other. And what happens is they begin to swirl around like that. And that's how tornadoes are formed. That's how whirlwinds are formed. Well, sometimes in life, we feel like we are caught between these multiple winds coming from all these different directions. Sometimes we have the wind of adversity coming from this direction. We have the wind of discouragement coming from this direction. We may have the wind of physical problems or financial setback, and these winds are just coming at us from all directions. And and what happens is those winds can turn into a whirlwind, and we think to ourselves, what has happened to my life? What is happening to my life? And today, some of you here undoubtedly are feeling like that you are in the midst of a whirlwind. And in Proverbs chapter 10, There's one verse that addresses this, and I want this to be our verse for the morning. Chapter 10 and verse number 25. The Bible says this When the whirlwind passes by, the wicked is no more, but the righteous has an everlasting foundation. Now, just a very casual reading of that verse. Uh, says a couple of things to us just right off the bat. First of all, I notice here that whirlwinds don't last forever. They pass by. Again, look at the beginning of the verse. When the whirlwind passes by, that whirlwind that you might be in today, that situation that you might be facing, I just want to remind you today, it did not come to stay. It came to pass. Four of the greatest verses in all the Bible, this too shall pass. When the whirlwind passes, passes by. Now, another thing I notice here is that as a general rule, now this would not always be true. It depends on how people respond, but as a general rule, whirlwind storms have a negative effect on unbelievers, and they have a positive effect on believers. Now, look at it again. Look at the verse. When the whirlwind passes by, the wicked... The unbeliever is no more. In other words, the the storm that comes into their life has a negative effect on them. But the righteous has an everlasting foundation. In other words, a a Christian person goes through many of the same storms that a non-Christian goes through. As my dad said last week in his sermon on why do bad things happen to good people, we're all living in a fallen world, and we go through many of the same things. But those of us who are saved as a general rule, when the storm is over, if we've responded properly, by the grace of God, we will still be standing. The righteous has an everlasting foundation. Now, that being true, even those of us who are saved, even those of us who believe with all of our hearts that God is not only that He, he exists, but in the storms of our life, that He remains in, our, in control, that, that He has a good purpose in mind, that we can trust Him, whatever it is we face, even though we believe those things, and that builds up our faith, even those of us who are believers, we don't always get an A+. Plus in how we respond to the storms of life. We don't always, we don't always get an A+. Plus. Nobody's perfect. And sometimes those whirlwinds hit us out of nowhere, and instead of responding with faith and, and with confidence and with courage and with a positive attitude that results from all of that, many times we respond in different ways. And so what I want to do in the message today, I want to mention three mistakes that believers, those of us who are saved, often make in the midst of a whirlwind three mistakes and the first one is simply this in the midst of a whirlwind we often doubt things that we know to be true we doubt things that we know to be true these storms come into our life and and we begin to doubt is God really in control is God really good? Because if God were really good, why would He have allowed this to happen? Does God really have all the power that the Bible says He has, and the preacher says He has, and all these songs say? that he had? If God has all this power, if God has power to heal, why did He let my loved one die? If God has power to lift us up, why am I depressed? If God has power in all these ways, why am I going through what I'm going through? I'm saying in the midst of a whirlwind, we often doubt things in the darkness of the night, and especially as the storm goes on, we often doubt things that for many years we have known and we have believed to be true. Now, The reason I say that is, first of all, because we've all done it. I've done that, and I'm sure you have too. But did you know some of the greatest characters in all the Bible, when they found themselves in a whirlwind, they themselves doubted things that they knew to be true? Now, there are a lot of examples I could give this, but I just want to give the example of one person. So go to the New Testament, if you would, and find the Gospel of John and chapter number one. I want us to think about John the Baptist for just a moment the cousin of Jesus, the forerunner of Jesus, the one who baptized Jesus and announced the coming of of Jesus. John the Baptist, if anybody ever believed that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, it was John the Baptist. And I want to show you how he came to know this. In John chapter 1 and verse 29, this is one of the greatest verses in the New Testament, it says, the next day John, now that's John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who is preferred before me, for he was before me. In other words, he is greater than I am. But look what he says in verse 31. I did not know him. I didn't understand that that this was the Lamb of God, that this was the Messiah, the Savior of the world, but that he should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. John's baptism in the Jordan River was telling people to repent of their sins and to believe in the Messiah who was to come. And John bore witness, John the Baptist bore witness saying, remember, he baptized Jesus. Now watch this. I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and He remained upon Jesus. John is re- recalling the experience that he had had in the Jordan River, where he baptized Jesus and then lifted him out of that water. And when Jesus came out of that water, a dove came down from heaven and landed on Jesus, on presumably on the shoulder of Jesus. But look what it says. I did not know him, verse 33, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. In other words, God had said to John the Baptist, John, I know you don't fully understand what's going on. I know that you know that you're to announce the coming of the Messiah. What you've not yet understood is your cousin is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah, and this is going to be the sign for you. When you see a dove land on him, that's the one. That is the Savior of the world. And so look what John said in verse 34. And I have seen and testified that this is the son of God. In other words, God had spoken to John and said, John, this is how you'll know the Messiah. A dove will land on him. And he saw that happen in the person of Jesus. And he knew beyond the shadow of any doubt that Jesus Christ was the son of God, the savior of the world, the long promised Messiah. And that's why he could say, behold, the lamb of God pointing at Jesus with not a doubt in his mind, who takes away the sin of the world. Now, what I want you to see is John the Baptist knew that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, turn back to the Gospel of Matthew. Just go back to the left, a few books, and find Matthew chapter 11. We're going to read another story that happened years later in the life of John the Baptist. This man who baptized Jesus, who saw the dove land on Jesus, who heard God's voice from heaven with his own ears, he had an experience that that we've not had and he knew in his heart that Jesus was the Messiah. But in Matthew chapter 11, John the Baptist now is in prison. Why is he in prison? He's in prison because of his faithful witness of Jesus Christ, and more specifically, he's in prison because he has confronted Herod about Herod's sinful lifestyle. Matthew chapter 11, verse 1. Now, it came to pass when Jesus finished commanding his 12 disciples, that he departed from there to teach and to preach in their cities. So, Jesus now is out teaching and preaching. He's well established in his ministry, but look in verse 2. And when John had heard in prison about the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples now, these disciples still had access to John. The disciples weren't in prison, the disciples of John the Baptist, but he was. And now John's in prison, and he's hearing about all the things that Jesus is doing out there. And so he sends two of his disciples, and watch this, verse 3, and said to him, are you the coming one, or do we look for another? John the Baptist in prison. We could say he's in his own whirlwind now. He's experiencing his own storm. And in the, in the difficult circumstances that he found himself in, John the Baptist began to doubt and to wonder and to question, is Jesus Christ really the Messiah? Is Jesus Christ really the one we've been waiting for? Is Jesus Christ really the Savior of the world? What was he doing? He was doubting in the dark what he had believed in the light. He was doubting things that for three years he had known to be True. And I'm saying to you, we've done the same thing. Now, we may never have doubted that Jesus is the Messiah. I've never doubted that. Not for one minute have I ever doubted that Jesus is the Messiah. But there have probably been times in all of our lives that we've doubted whether or not Jesus cares, whether or not God has the power to see us through, whether or not God really is in control. And this is John the Baptist. He's doubting who Jesus is in this prison. And so Jesus sent word through these two disciples of John, and look in verse 4 what he said. Jesus answered and said to them, go and tell John the things which you hear and see. The blind see, and the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. The dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. What was Jesus saying? Jesus saying, John, listen, you know who I am. You baptized me. You heard the Father's voice. You saw the dove land on me. You know I'm the Savior of the world. You know I'm the promised Messiah. But, John, what's happened to you now is your circumstances have gotten tough. They've gotten difficult. They've gotten hard. You're in prison. You're in a storm. You're in a whirlwind. And now, John, you are doubting those things that you deep down know to be true. And what was Jesus saying? He was saying, John, don't doubt me, doubt your doubts question your doubts. Don't doubt me. The blind see. The lame walk. The lepers are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. The poor have the gospel preached to them. John, you know I'm the Messiah. Believe. One of the best things I ever heard, and I can't remember where I first heard it, where I first read it, but years ago I heard this statement, and it has stuck with me ever since, and here it is. Never doubt in the dark what you believed in the light. In that Jordan River, John saw that dove come down. He said, this is the Messiah. I just baptized him. But years later, in the darkness of this prison, he's doubting what he had believed in the light. And like I say, we've all done that. I've done that. I've wondered. I've questioned. Not that Jesus is the Messiah, but but I've asked these questions. But you know what I've learned? I have learned that God is in control, even when it looks like nobody's in control. I've learned that God is good, even when he doesn't appear to be good at the time. I've learned that God cares, even when it seems as though God is a million miles away. And I'm encouraging you today, don't doubt in the dark what you believe in the light. Don't doubt those things that you deep down know to be true. Doubt your doubts, but don't doubt God and don't doubt his promises in your life. But the first mistake that we often make in a whirlwind, we doubt those things that we know to be true. Now, a second mistake that we often make is this, and it's just as bad. In the midst of a whirlwind, we often make premature and inaccurate judgments about the situation. Here we are in the storm, John was in the prison. We're in the whirlwind. We're in the heat of the battle, man, and what do we do? We began in the midst of the trial to make a premature and many times an inaccurate judgment. Now, I read a quote by Charles Spurgeon, the great English preacher, and I thought it was one of the best quotes I'd ever read. He said, a jury doesn't reach a verdict until the trial is over. Now, you think about that. We've seen so many in the last few years and decades famous trials on television, and the prosecuting side makes their case against the defendant, and man, when they're putting that evidence out there, it looks like, man, he is guilty, no doubt about it. You know, lock him up. He's guilty for whatever he's being accused of. But then the trial goes on, and the defense comes, and the defense makes their case and when you finish hearing the defense, you say, now, wait a second, this is not as clear cut as what I thought it was. Even Proverbs has a verse that says that. It says the first person to present his case seems right until the other side comes and tells their side of the story. And so as you watch these trials on TV, you think, "No, wait a second, I thought he was guilty, but now I'm beginning to wonder. I don't think he did that at all. It doesn't seem like he is guilty now. But what did Spurgeon say? He said, a jury doesn't reach a verdict until the trial is over, and yet many times in life we do. We're in the middle of a trial, and it's hard, and it's painful, and it doesn't make sense, and we don't like it, and we're hurting. I talked to a man yesterday, a a good friend of mine, he and his wife, members of our church for many years. She worked as a ministry assistant here at the church, and about 15 years ago, they retired and moved to East Texas, and she ended up getting Alzheimer's and some other physical problems, and she got very bad. And when one day, and I haven't talked to either one of them in 15 years, and her husband called me, and he said, John, do you remember me? This is Tom Clark. I said, Tom, I remember you. And, and he told me about his wife, Joyce, and what she was going through. And he said, you know, I'm just sitting here at our house today. My wife's now in assisted living and he said, I'm as low as I've ever been, and he said, I just, to tell you how low he was, he said, I just got my phone, and I started scrolling through the contact list, and I just said, now God, is there anybody in my contact list that I could call today that might could help me? And he said, John, I didn't even think I still had your number in my phone, and he said, but I saw your name, and, uh, and I just wanted to call and he called me, and since then, he and I have you know, every two or three or four weeks, we'll talk. And Joyce since has died and gone to be with the Lord, Tom called me yesterday. And uh, he's in the middle of this. I mean, they've been married 65 years. And, and he's just trying to deal with this and, and not get over it, but get through it. And I said to him, I said, well, Tom, how are you doing? And he said, well, I'm doing okay. And he told me all about some of the things he's been going through and the the, the hospice nurse who came to his house the other day for two hours, talking to him, trying to help him through this part of the grieving process. I said, Tom, how are you sleeping at night? Because if you've ever been through anything like that, you know that one of the things you can't do is sleep. And another thing you can't do many times is eat. And so when you can't sleep and you can't eat, that's a bad combination. He said, well, he said, I guess maybe I'm sleeping a little better. He said, I get in bed and I lay there every night till four in the morning. And he said, I finally go to sleep about 4, and I wake up about 7, and so I'm going on about three hours of sleep every night, and I get a little nap in the afternoon. But he's just telling me all this, and he is in the midst of a trial of grief, and it just takes time. And again, you don't get over it, but it takes time to get through it. And he said yesterday, he said, John, uh, I I'll still miss Joyce, he said, but I'll tell you, the more I've thought about it, I'm so glad she's no longer in that assisted living in the condition she was in. I wouldn't bring her back if I could. And he said, I know she's in heaven, and I know she's happy, and I know I'll see her again, and I'm trying to focus on her and how she's doing, not on me and how I'm feeling. And he said, I just sense that little by little, day by day, God is slowly bringing me through this. But what I'm saying is it would be a horrible mistake for him in the midst of that. To reach a verdict on God and to say, well, God, if you're really good, why did you let this why did you let her get this disease? God, if you're really powerful, if you're really Jehovah Rapha, if you're really the healer, why didn't you heal her? See, it would be a horrible mistake for him in the middle of the trial to reach a verdict before the trial is over. And so what is he doing? He's letting the trial run its course. He's letting the trial play itself out. And as he goes on with God, things are becoming clearer to him. Now, go back just a few books from Proverbs to the book of Job. Best example I know of in the Bible of somebody who was in a trial, and you know we study Job in this trial of all that he lost, his health, his children, his his finances, his reputation within the community. Many people thought that he was going through all this because of some sin in his life, and that wasn't true at all. And many times we read Job say something that is a strong declaration of faith, For example, in chapter, don't look this verse up, but in chapter 13 and verse 15, Job said, though God slay me, yet will I trust him. High watermark of faith. But at other times, we find Job struggling in this trial. And we find that he didn't make an A plus all the way through either. And uh, he sometimes reached a verdict before the trial was over. Chapter 3 and verse 11. Notice what Job said on this particular day. He wasn't talking about how great God was or how you know how strong his faith was on this day, chapter 3 and verse 11. Here's what Job said Why did I not die at birth? Why did I not perish when I came from the womb? Why did the knees that received me or the breast that I should nurse? In other words, why didn't I die as soon as I was born? Why did God let me grow up and, and be uh, nursed by my mom and, and, and grow? And wh- why didn't I just die? When I, would have, when I was first born, in verse 13, in fact, he says, For now I would have lain still and been quiet. I would have been asleep. Then I would have been at rest. Job, in the middle of the trial, reached a verdict. And on this particular day, Job concluded that it would have been better for him that he had never been born. Or if he had to be born, that he would have died on the day of his birth as opposed to having to go through this trial. And so Job uh, is, is making the mistake here that we often make. He's reaching a premature verdict. Now go to the end of the book of Job in chapter number 42. Because now, at, when we get to chapter 42, the trial has run its course. The trial now has come full circle. And Job is beginning to see it from a different perspective and to see it a different way. In chapter 42 and verse 10, notice what the Bible says. And the Lord restored Job's losses when he prayed for his friends. Look in verse 12. Now the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And it talks about all the sheep and the camels and the oxen and all that he had gotten back. And if you compare the numbers there to the numbers that he had lost at the beginning, he got back double what he had lost. And then in verse number 13, it said, he also had seven sons and three daughters. What had he had at the beginning of the book? Seven sons and three daughters, and they had all been killed. And so here at the end, it says that now he has seven sons and three daughters. The only thing that wasn't returned to him in double was his kids. You say, well, why didn't he have 20 kids instead of 10? Remember this. He hadn't lost his first 10. They had just gone to heaven before he had. And so that's why God didn't give him 20. He just gave him 10 because he still had the other 10. They had just moved to heaven. And then look in verse 16. It says, after this, that is after the trial, it's over with now. Job lived 140 years and saw his children and grandchildren for four generations. So Job died old and full of days. And so at the beginning of the trial, Job says, God would have been better if I had never been born. And at the end of the trial, Job is saying, now wait a second, God has taken this and God has done something great in me. And you know last week I saw something that I never had thought of based on a, a text message from a friend that got me to thinking in a different way about Job. Did you know at the end of Job's trial, the greatest thing wasn't that God restored Job twice as much as he had before. I'd always thought that was the end of the story. Did you know the greatest thing wasn't what God did for Job. The greatest thing was what God did in Job.
0: If you feel that you're in the midst of a whirlwind, we have a booklet that may help you entitled, Writing Out the Storms of Life. Simply go to our website, peacebybelieving.org and look for the booklets tab at the top of the page. Thank you for joining us today. And we look forward to you being with us on the next Peace by Believing with John Redmond, as John concludes his message in the midst of the whirlwind.